Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Adams. As of this glorious Monday morning, Theo Epstein's dog can't control its bladder, Brooks Kepka publicly announces that he can bench press more than Rory McIlroy, and yet another dim-witted Crimson Tide fan threatens to destroy a rival's property. But we begin with the three most important things that rocked our world and changed our perspective over the past seven days, or more specifically, the best of last week. First, in what is being termed as one of the most bizarre sports stories to grace our ears in the last decade, which, let's just take a minute and transport ourselves five years earlier, back when Flappy Bird was still flapping his wings and Brangelina were still glued together. If you would have said to me, hey Brock, the biggest sports story in October of 2019 is that Daryl Morey, an algorithm super freak, is going to start a sports cold war with seven words in the Twitterverse, which in turn will have repercussions that will vault LeBron James to the same villainous platform as Darth Vader and Hannibal Lecter, I would have said, Fuller, go easy on the Pepsi. But that's exactly what happened. Daryl Morey tweeted that he thinks all people are people, which, last time I checked, they are. His words were taken as treasonous, escalating to an international game of paper, walk, scissors. And just when we all thought things were dying down, hashtag LeBron Shames added more fuel to the glowing red dawn with a 45-second comment he made at an improv press conference at the Los Angeles Lakers practice facility. Said James, we all talk about freedom of speech. Yes, we do have freedom of speech, but at times there are ramifications for the negative that can happen when you're not thinking about others and you're only thinking about yourself. I don't want to get into a feud with Daryl Morey, but I believe he wasn't educated on the situation at hand. And he spoke. And so many people could have been harmed, not only financially, but emotionally, physically, and spiritually. So just be careful with what we tweet and what we say and what we do. Even though, yes, we do have freedom of speech, but there can be a lot of negative that comes from that speech. I'm sorry, LeBron. What are you concerned about? Ticket sales for Space Jam 2? That you're not going to be able to trademark the phrase Taco Tuesday in Beijing? The fact that you're going to end up in second place behind the Black Mamba on jersey sales in China? You're right. There are financial repercussions that you can inevitably face, such as a slight dent in the NBA salary cap due to China pulling its sponsorship. But let's face the facts. The quote-unquote trials and aggravations you face in your boardwalk empire are not nearly as serious as what the protesters in Hong Kong face every single day. Your business model may be strive for greatness, but the protesters is just stay alive. The past four months in Hong Kong are epitomized by one of the opening scenes of the film Big Daddy, in which Adam Sandler's girlfriend introduces him to the grandpa she's been having an affair with. Sonny, he has a five-year plan, she says. What is it? Don't die? That's how people in Hong Kong have been living, and we're supposed to feel bad for James that no one is going to see his rematch with the Monstars? This statement follows the trend of moments that epitomizes if James were being asked for his oath and testimony in a court of law, the bailiff could reword the sworn testimony phrase to be, do you care about yourself, your whole self, and nothing but yourself, so help you, Braun. Time and time again, he has orchestrated diva-esque tactics that are done only for the sake of making his narcissistic dreams a reality. LeBron James is someone who has done the following. Turns his back on the team who drafted him because he thought South Beach had better waters. Films a one-hour TV special dedicated solely to himself and where he would be taking his talents for the upcoming season leaves teams completely catered to and structured around him the first instance any adversity was felt, only to leave the vacated franchise in lottery-bound purgatory for a decade. Pressures front offices everywhere to sign contracts for his quote-unquote friends so that they have a spot on the roster when they're not needed at all. I'm looking at you, James Jones. 
has the word chosen one tattooed across his shoulders, puts himself on the front of the banana boat, which completely misappropriates the weight balance, thus causing the inflatable joyride to careen off into the Caribbean. Everyone knows the tallest person sits on the last seat of the banana boat, LeBron. As heinous as his media comments were on Monday, this shouldn't shock anyone, as this has been the running mantra of LeBron James for nearly his entire career. Yes, the whole situation became a little murkier because of Maury's tweets, but his comments made the world see that he is more concerned about the number of shoes being sold than he is people literally being beaten to death by their own government for four months straight. We get it, LeBron. You are the sole purveyor of your own universe. But you don't care about the people around you, and this 45-second soundbite personifies who you are to the millions of fans who don't believe in you. Second, both Alabama and Clemson respectively limped to victories over Tennessee and Louisville over the weekend and remained the number one and two teams in the coaches' poll, which at this point is like saying that Olive Garden and Buffalo Wild Wings are the number one and two best places to eat on a Friday night. We all know you just microwave the state gorgonzola in the kitchen, Olive Garden. You don't need to patronize us. Seeing Bama and Clemson rank number one and two makes me want to regurgitate Ted Stryker's line in the film Airplane. Surely you can't be serious. Let's throw some numbers at you, because I hear that's a phrase someone uses when they're trying to sound intelligent. First, let's look at the defending champion Clemson Tigers. Clemson currently has the fifth best defense in the country, which is respectable. However, let's look at who they're facing. So far, the average offense Clemson faces hovers in the neighborhood of about 71.4, which is right around the usual pathetic number an ACC team faces each and every year. Just for comparison, Texas A&M, the number 32-ranked defense in the country, has faced the hardest schedule, with the average offense being elevated 20 spots higher at 51. Now you may say, well, what do these numbers mean? And the answer is this. While Clemson has a top-tier defense, they haven't played anyone remotely competitive. Sure, they stop people from scoring, but that's because the teams they face can't even spell the word touchdown. Bragging about Clemson having a dominating defense would be the equivalent of Lady Gaga tweeting that she just won American Idol against a bunch of Oompa Loompas. Of course she can outduel them with her serenades from A Star Is Born. Their vocal highlight is a monotone swan song about a girl who turned into a blueberry. Alabama, on the other hand, is a hot mess of dysfunction, facing on average an offensive rank of 75. However, the glaring elephant in the room with crimson painted toenails is that Bama has the 26th best defense, which should scare the living daylights out of Lord Saban and company. They have played weaker opponents and can't stop them to save their lives. The only thing holding their season together is the ankle shreds of their Grandmaster Tua, and as of this morning, those are about as reliable as Nicki Minaj's side job as a CPA. Bama and Clemson should not be ranked as the top two teams, nor should they be considered for the college football playoff at this point in the season. They have looked so lethargic and incompetent on the field that I would dare argue I don't think they should be any higher than 10 behind both one-loss Auburn and Georgia. Yes, that may sound ludicrous, but I don't think we should automatically elevate and glorify teams that haven't done anything yet. And I bet you're all in your cars and your houses thinking to yourself, Shirley, you can't be serious with this statement. Well, I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. Finally, on Monday night, we witnessed another installment of the recycled franchise, These Refs Are Awful, which is a phrase I hear from the media almost as many times as I hear the words, Daddy, what are you doing? From my two-year-old daughter while I'm writing the script for this show. Look, we've all seen refs suck. This isn't anything new to us. So stop acting so surprised when they make a mistake. 
from the 1972 Soviet basketball last-second crisis to Colorado's fifth and goal to Brett Hull's foot in the crease to the tuck rule to Golden Tate's Hail Mary. Literally, I could go on and on listing moments in sports history where human error has sadly been the decisive factor anointing the wrong team as champions. So don't act surprised when it keeps happening. Bad calls by refs are as certain in life as death, taxes, and Roseanne tweeting something offensive late at night. Last Monday night, the refs' foolishness was put on full display as they made two completely bogus false calls point-blank, which resulted in the Packers walking away as the victors in a game they had no business winning. The Lions-Packers game was irrefutably one of the most pure examples where the phrase, the refs lost us the game, is applicable. For all we know, Tim Donahue is in a beach house in Pensacola laughing at his minions for executing another domino in his master plan. Referees getting calls wrong is the equivalent of Nicolas Cage continuing to be cast in bad movies. And when I say bad movies, I mean the types of shows that make you want to gouge out your eyes in shame for witnessing these type of atrocities. Now, some of you out there can argue that Nicolas Cage had some great moments, like Raising Arizona or Leaving Las Vegas. But need I remind you that the last few big films he's been in are Mandy, Left Behind, The Croods, Ghost Rider, Knowing, Bangkok Dangerous, National Treasure, Next, or The Wicker Man? He has more bad movies on his record than the combined offspring of 19 kids and counting. Right now, we probably all feel like Jesse Pinkman in Breaking Bad screaming at the ceiling, he can't keep getting away with it. And we are all right. The refs should not be allowed to keep making this mistake over and over and over again. And unless the commissioners of the sports take action, we're going to continue to see sequels of Bangkok Dangerous and The Wicker Man keep littering the fields. We now shift to what matters this week, which for today's episode concerns someone who was once told as a child that the only department store existing in the real world is Old Navy. I'm talking about His Majesty in Khakis, Coach Jim Harbaugh. Over the weekend, Coach Harbaugh and his Michigan Wolverines suffered a heartbreaking loss to Penn State in Happy Valley 28-21. After the game, Harbaugh vented about his frustrations with the loss, indirectly challenging the officiating of the game, saying that it would be interesting to see the results on film as to how his receivers were getting openly tackled before the ball was even thrown to them. The loss was difficult, but it follows a disappointing trend in Harbaugh's career at Michigan, in which he is 1-10 versus AP Top 10 teams and 0-8 as an underdog. The numbers don't lie, and they have stirred disdain and negativity from fans in maize and blue all across the country. The doubt in Harbaugh is hard to comprehend, as the hype around his ascension to Ann Arbor was to the point of pure insanity in 2015. People were more enthralled about Harbaugh being at the helm in Michigan then they were irate about Jon Snow being murdered by the Night's Watch. We finally have the Chosen One, they said. He is going to bring us back to greatness, they said. Jim Harbaugh is a 10-foot-tall beastman who showers in vodka and feeds his baby shrimp scampi, they said. In 2015, Harbaugh had the notoriety of Bill Brasky, and now four years later, all he is is a shoulder shrug of post-game excuses with multiple scarlet letter losses branded on his cap. The frustration can certainly be felt from Michigan boosters and fans. At this point in your season, where do you go? You chased out the last coach to win you a national title. You then went through the Rich Rod debacle and realized no one taught him what the word defense means. This was followed by the four awful years of the Hoke era. And now you're four seasons into the Harbaugh dynasty and a once perennial contender will probably finish 9-4 and four on the year and be left out of the national title discussion for the 13th straight season. I completely get the frustration you Michigan fans may have with him, but at the same time, 
This shouldn't be shocking to you at all whatsoever. Look at his track record. As a coach, he has never stayed anywhere longer than four years and usually vacates the premise, leaving the situation worse than he found it. From the Raiders to the University of San Diego to Stanford to the 49ers to now Michigan, he is hyped up on all cylinders in the beginning, only to leave an empty trophy case behind after the three yards and a cloud of dust have settled. I'm sure you were all hyped that Harbaugh and his staff would lead the children of Ann Arbor to the promised land. But at the end of the day, he loses the big games. He can't beat Ohio State. And his social media blitzes of taking teams to Europe and Australia and having slumber parties with potential recruits are being openly exposed as a bunch of smoke and mirrors with no results to show. Which brings us to this. In 1975, a new face in comedy took hold of audiences across the country as Chevy Chase led a host of stars on the show Saturday Night Live. Chase was funny, witty, and his role on SNL would vault into some of his crowning moments as Clark Griswold in National Lampoon's Vacation Empire. For brief glimpses, Chevy Chase was a funny man and someone producers were throwing checks at left and right. But then people began to realize that Chevy Chase really doesn't have that same comedic value as people once thought. And in all reality, he is not an enjoyable guy to have on set. You can see this over his entire career as he alienated himself from multiple shows. In the 70s, he attacked Bill Murray and then was booted from SNL. In the 90s, he tried his hand on the late night circuit with the Chevy Chase show, which only lasted five episodes. Years later, he resurrected his legacy with his role in the sitcom community, only to see that crash and burn by making racist comments to coworkers and threatening to beat up the show's creator. Everywhere Chase has been, the situation is worse, and people can't say good riddance quick enough. And that is what is becoming of Jim Harbaugh. He is the Chevy Chase of the coaching circuit. He creates conflict with owners, teammates, and administration, only to leave the organizations burning in flames as he vacates the premise with a can of gas in his hands. He is a trendy college coach who has a shorter shelf life and a job than a carne asada burrito from a 24-hour Mexican restaurant. Aside from his rookie deal with the Chicago Bears, Harbaugh has never stayed in the same zip code for longer than five years, period. He is a model of dysfunction in all degrees, and that's the reality Michigan fans are facing this week as they gear up for their game against number 8 Notre Dame. As much as he talks, as hip and cool as he tries to be, as trendy and dominating as he looks in press conferences and on media days, there's only so far a pair of khakis will get you in this life. Thanks for listening to Brand Spanking New. We'll definitely be back next week, unlike the axles on the Sooner Schooner wagons. Good night, Oklahoma.